Shalom. Welcome to the New Millennium Edition of the Torah Teaching. This audio program is produced by Lion and Lamb Ministries and is presented by Monty Judah. If you would, turn in your Bibles with me now to Genesis chapter 44, verse 18. Joseph is a type, he's a picture of Messiah Yeshua, in that Joseph was despised by his brethren and cast down, sold, and that Yeshua, in the same way, has been despised of his brethren, cast down, sold, if you will, sold away for a price. There was a day that Joseph was raised up, there's a day come that Yeshua has been raised up, and that we know that there's a day coming when all of Israel will be confronted with the reality that Yeshua is the Messiah. And that reality, that confrontation of that, is pictured for us in how Joseph confronts his brethren. Now, Joseph does it by using a wonderful example of grace, uh, in that the food, the very thing that they needed for life, uh, they would come to uh, Joseph to purchase there in Egypt, but that every time they went to purchase it, uh, their money was found in their sacks. They could never buy this food. They could never buy this life. And the same is true uh, with what Yeshua has brought to us. He has brought grace to us, the grace of God. And you can't buy this grace. You can't buy or purchase this life that the Messiah has brought to us. Oh, you can come and you can inquire of it and you can ask of it, but you're going to find that your money is still in your sacks. And this was very perplexing to Joseph's brethren in that they were confused by it. And quite honestly, as we look at the way the grace of God has worked in this world and the way that Yeshua has offered himself up for us, uh, the grace of God is confusing to the world. And it's been extremely confusing to us, even as we have brethren who've been the recipients. There have been times when we flatly have admitted we don't understand this grace that is God given to us. And as the brethren of Joseph at certain moments said, what is this thing that God is doing to us? Uh, Sometimes we have had that feeling. Now, I left you a little bit in suspense last week because it came to the moment, the, the crucial moment with Joseph and his brethren in that Joseph did one more additional thing. He took Benjamin's sack, Benjamin the younger brother who had been brought to prove that they were honest men, He not only put his money back in his sack, but he also took Joseph's cup. He put his cup in his sack. And that when they accosted them after they'd left the city, he confronted them with and he accused them of, at least his servants went out and accused him of, you've stolen uh, the viceroy of Egypt's cup. And of course, the sons of uh, Jacob, the brethren of Joseph, they all denied it vehemently. And the servants went from sack to sack, starting from the oldest all the way to the youngest. And sure enough, they discovered the cup in Benjamin's sack. Now, and this is where kind of the story ended last week. They were extremely perplexed as to how in the world did their cup get there because they knew they were in deep trouble now. And they had brought back. And of course, if you remember, Judah had pledged to Jacob that he would guarantee Benjamin's return. And now Benjamin is in deep, deep trouble. And uh, this portion now begins with Judah approaching Joseph and and pleading the case now uh, for this dilemma that they found themselves in. Now, if the grain and the food that Joseph would not sell to his brethren represents the grace of God, and it's a wonderful example of it, then what does the cup represent? What is Joseph doing with his cup putting it in Benjamin's sack that would cause there to be the picture to come forth into the new covenant that would illustrate for us, again, the greater work of Yeshua. I submit to you that there is a cup sitting in the sacks of Israel. Now, Israel will deny that it's there, just as the brethren of Joseph denied there is no cup in their sacks. But there is a cup that we in the New Covenant know about that Yeshua did hold up, and he said, this cup is the cup of the New Covenant. And it represented his blood, his life. And he took uh, ownership of it. Yeshua took ownership of a particular cup. It's the third cup of the Passover called the cup of redemption. 
all Israel has that cup in their sacks, but they don't yet know that it belongs to Yeshua. There is a day coming when Yeshua will confront Israel, all of Israel, with that cup and say, you have my cup. And Israel will be very perplexed to give answer, just as the brethren of Joseph were perplexed to give answer to Joseph. So with that as a backdrop, let us now examine um, how Judah approaches Joseph and pleads his case. And it is a pattern, it is a picture of what will surely be into the prophetic future, how Israel will have to come to terms with Yeshua, I believe. So it begins at verse 18, chapter 44. Read along with me as I read. Then Judah approached him and said, O my Lord, may your servant please speak a word in my Lord's ears and do not be angry with your servant, for you are equal to Pharaoh. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, we have an old father and a little child of his old age. Now, his brother is dead, so he alone is left of his mother, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. But we said to my Lord, the lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. You said to your servants, however... Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you should not see my face again. Thus it came about when we went up to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And our father said, go back, buy us a little food. But we said, we cannot go down. If our youngest brother is with us, then we will go down. For we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. And your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons, and the one went out from me, and I said, Surely he is torn in pieces, and I have not seen him since. And if you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring my gray hair down to Sheol in sorrow. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, And the lad is not with us since his life is bound up in the lad's life. It will come about when he sees that the lad is not with us, then he will die. Thus your servants will bring down the gray hair of your servant, our father, down to Sheol in sorrow. For your servant became surety for the lad to my father, saying, If I do not bring him back to you, then let me bear the blame before my father forever. Now, therefore, please Let your servant remain instead of a lad, a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go up with his brothers. For how shall I go up to my father if the lad is not with me, lest I see the evil that would overtake my father? This speech made by Judah is really broken up into three parts. It's really pretty straightforward. Many of the verses, many of the statements that Judah makes is really a repetition of fact. In fact, it's a restatement of the problem. He simply says to Joseph, if you'll recall, Joseph, you said this and we responded. You asked about a brother, we told you. You asked about our father, we told you. And then you insisted that we would not be received again unless we brought our youngest brother back to you. And then he describes in verses 30 and 32 the consequences of the present, the dilemma that they're in. You see, the lad's life is bound up in the life of the father. There's a connection there between Benjamin and Jacob. It has to do with the love that he had with his wife, Rachel, and with another brother named, he doesn't mention to him, Joseph, but one who had been torn to pieces, who had been removed. And then Judah, very quickly, very shortly, simply presents his proposal and his plea. He says, let me be and let me stand in place of the lad and let him go up to his father and I will remain in his place. I will pay the price for him. 
Now, you don't hear a lot of, in the words, you don't hear a lot of contrite spirit. You don't hear a lot of, I'm sorry, we're sorry. You don't hear a great repentance of what has happened with Joseph or anything like that. But in between the lines, there is no question that what Judah is describing to him is laced with contrite things. This is the dilemma we're in. This is the trouble we have had. And now we are in this situation. And there's no question, you don't need to necessarily say it or even necessarily ask it, but you know that all of the brethren are saddened by the situation and they're perplexed as to what the solution should be. So Joseph sees that. But why why in the world would Joseph yield at this? What is it about this particular speech that caused Joseph to respond, chapter 45, verse 1, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. And he cried, have everyone go out from me. So there was no man with him. And when Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard it, and the house of Pharaoh heard of it. What, would, what was in this speech? that would make Joseph's heart just break. He has already met with them two times before, been in their presence, has been part of the negotiations for the purchase of food, himself kept Simeon in prison that time frame. And now upon seeing Benjamin and this situation, which he obviously had mastered, he had perpetrated onto them, and now when it finally comes to this moment, what is it? that Judah has said that has caused even Joseph to lose control and to come apart, if you will, and to then to reveal himself. Verse 3, then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. I'm Joseph. What is it? Well, it's really right there in the words of Joseph, is my father still alive? Because if you look back at the speech, count with me what Judah has done. Beginning in verse 19, have you a father? And I want you to count the number of times there's a reference made to Jacob. Verse 19, verse 20, twice. Verse 22, three times. Verse 24, once. Verse 25, again. Verse 27, again. Verse 29, again. Verse 31, again. Verse 32, twice. Verse 34, twice. Fifteen times. Judah's not pleading the case for Benjamin. He's not pleading the case for himself or his other brethren. He's pleading the case for Jacob. This will kill my father. And this is the part that Joseph, even he, could not resist. There was a wonderful relationship between Joseph and his father. If you recall, Jacob had made the multicolored coat for Joseph. And Joseph had served his father well, tending the flocks. He himself had gone on behalf of J Jacob's request to go and see about his brethren and see about the flocks. He did it because he loved his father. There was a very close relationship between Jacob and Joseph. And now Judah, whether he did it knowingly or unknowingly, he has appealed to Joseph for the sake of his father. Now, it's one thing for Joseph to deal with the mistakes of his brethren and to teach them a lesson. It's one thing to see upon his see his eyes and put his eyes upon his younger brother whom he loved and cared for. But it is another thing to appeal to his heart and say, if you continue on with this, our father will surely die. And this Joseph does not want. And he cannot go any longer. And so he reveals himself and he says, I'm Joseph. And the first question out of his mouth is, is my father still alive? Is he well? Because we don't want it to go to that point. I believe, brethren, that there is a clue, an incredible clue here. 
that has to do with how Judah is going to have to come to repentance, how all of Israel is going to have to come to repentance with Yeshua. Somehow or another, in the great love that Israel has professed for the God of Israel, they're going to have to come to terms with what happened to our Heavenly Father when we rejected His Messiah. They're going to have to come to terms with what happened to Him. And when they do, when they address whom they know to be God for surety, and realize what has taken place, then there will be reconciliation. Then there will be reconciliation between Yeshua, the son of the father, with his brethren, just as there was between Joseph and his brethren. And the focus will need to be on the father. Now, Yeshua specifically confronted uh, his brethren, and this is recorded for us in the Gospel of John, in which when they proclaimed that they were the believers of God, the Father, but they weren't coming to terms with Yeshua, the Son, that Yeshua confronted them and said, I and the Father are one. If you reject me, you've rejected the Father. And the same thing was true of Joseph's brethren. By them mistreating Joseph, they truly had mistreated Jacob. Now, maybe they had separated it, and maybe in their minds they didn't think they did. But they had. And the results were very evident, particularly when they brought back Joseph's coat, bloodied and ripped to shreds, and handed it to their father and said, Father, examine this coat and see if it isn't the one that you know about. And if you recall in the story of Judah and Tamar, Judah himself had been confronted with a similar question when Tamar had gone out and become impregnated by Judah, whom he thought had been impregnated by a harlot, and she had taken as a surety Judah's staff, his signet ring, and his cords. And when he was confronting Tamar, Tamar had posed the very same question to him that he had posed to his father. And he said, she had said, examine these things and see if you do not recognize who they belong to. And if you recall, Judah had come to terms. He had been the first to repent, and he said, she's more righteous than I. And there will be the same thing that the brethren will have to come to terms with, examine and see, and see if, in fact, Yeshua was not right concerning these things. If, in fact, that he didn't fulfill exactly as the prophets have said, he didn't follow the pattern that Joseph had, and that we are truly the descendants of the ancients, and we behave just like our fathers, and we rejected Yeshua ben Joseph just as surely as our fathers rejected Joseph. And come to terms with it. And so Judah's prayer, his plea, focusing, back where the real schism had taken place. The fact that Israel, although they claimed to be following the Father, had in fact not done the will of the Father. That there had been a breach there. And Yeshua's argument to all of Israel is, very simply, if you reject me, you've rejected the Father. Don't lay claim that you're following the God of Israel if you've rejected me, because we're one and you cannot separate us. Brethren, for us in the new covenant, there is a parallel, there is a reverse to this. Quite honestly, if you reject the son, you've also rejected the father. Well, I have news for you. If you reject the word and the will of the father, you've rejected the son also. And there are some today who would say, oh, we are followers of the Son. But they reject the word and the will of the Father. In particular, his commandments and his covenants. And I say to you, as sure as Yeshua said in his day, that if you reject the will of the Father and his word, his covenants, his commandments. Do not say that you are a believer of his son. Because his son will stand up and say, we are one 
and you cannot separate us. In fact, Yeshua specifically warned into the future the new covenant believers and said, there will be many who will say to me, Lord, Lord, who will not be entering the kingdom of heaven. You will call me, Yeshua, Lord, but you will not be entering the kingdom of heaven because you would not and will not do the will of my Father who is in heaven. Just because you say he's Lord does not mean that you're there. It's very clear that it works both ways, both old and new covenant, and it's illustrated for us in this pattern of reconciliation for it. The wonderful thing is that the story here is that they were reconciled. Joseph reveals himself to his brethren. Now, mind you, they were stunned. They were in shock. You mean that's Joseph? This is the, in the, in the modern Torah teachers, this is, they always coin this phrase, well, you don't look Jewish to me. <laughs> when they refer to Joseph. And that's a very common expression in the Jewish community is to see someone being reconciled to your family and say, well, you don't look Jewish. I've had that said to me a number of times. You know, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Judah. You know, it, it shouldn't be dark and dark hair and, and so forth. And sometimes uh, we have a certain expectation as to how things should appear, and it turns out they're quite different. And in the case of Joseph's brethren, I don't know what they were expecting Joseph to be, but they weren't expecting him to be attired or be in the appearance that he was that day. Certainly not in the stature and the position as being the viceroy of Egypt. And there is a day coming when they will see and they will look upon him whom they pierced. And for most Jews, it will be, you don't look like the Messiah to me, but I guess you are. And they'll have to come to terms with that. The, uh, there's other things that we could go and we could examine about this particular speech. And we could use it as a model, a pattern for uh, how to resolve conflict among brethren. But to simplify all of it, it would probably come down to this. That if you're really going to solve conflicts among brethren, the real heart of the conflict is not the principles involved. And it's not about me. It's not about them. It's about other things, more important things that we probably have violated and lost sight of. You know, couples, when they become reconciled, they discover that it's more about other than just themselves, that there were other more meaningful issues at stake. And certainly within the brotherhood today, the conflicts that exist, it's easy to say that we've missed the point. We think we're the principles in a conflict. We, we missed the point. We were both commanded to love one another by the same Father, and we lost sight of it. We lost sight of who we were all supposed to be serving. And in the case of the conflict of Joseph and his brethren, they lost sight of their father, Jacob, and allowed their the conflict between them to develop as far as it did. And by being reconciled to the Father, all of them, reconciliation uh, came forth for Joseph and his brethren together because they could all agree on that. They could agree that they love their father and, and they don't want to see harm come to him uh, for it. Now, that particular part of the story sets the stage for really the conclusion of the the book of, of Genesis. You know, if we were to simplify the whole book of Genesis, it's really a book about how did this people come to be and how in the world did they get in Egypt? How did they get in Egypt? Because that's how this book is going to conclude. And the rest of the Torah will go on with the great story of how they come out of Egypt and what happens to them as they leave Egypt. Um, and at this point, the portion now shifts to jo- uh, Joseph inviting his father... Jacob to now make the trip and come down to Egypt and live in Egypt with Joseph. Now, if you recall, up to this point, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Abraham had been brought out of the land of his 
father's house, had come to the promised land, had kind of bounced around in there for a little bit. Isaac, his son, had been specifically told, don't even get a wife from someplace else, you know, here in the land, and don't leave the land. And he wouldn't allow Isaac to go down any other place. He made him stay in the land. And now here's Jacob, who did spend a little bit out of the land, but he's returned to the land. And now suddenly the dilemma is, you, Jacob, you, we want you to leave the land again and come to Egypt. And no, that's not the plan. The great plan, don't you know the great plan? It's Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We're supposed to be in the promised land. We're supposed to have many descendants. They're supposed to live in the land. But there were other prophecies and there are other parts of the plan. Specifically, God had said to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, there's going to come a time when your descendants will go down into Egypt. They will be strangers in a land. But I will go down with them and I will make them a mighty nation, and I will bring them up out, and I will bring them back to this land. And so there were some steps in the plan that how God was going to do all of this. And now Jacob is now presented with the issue and the invitation to come to the land of Egypt, not the promised land, and to bring his whole family down there. And so the story shifts from Joseph's reconciliation of his brethren to the reunification of all of Jacob's family together now in the land of Egypt. By the way, the Hoff Torah portion, the after the Torah portion, the portion of the prophets that is taught on this Torah portion is Ezekiel 37, beginning at verse 15 through 24, which is the reunification of the house of Joseph with the house of Judah. The prophets, a future event. And that should tell you something about the future destiny of what happened with the ancestors and the impact it has on us today because we in our day and in our generation are beginning to see the first elements of the reunification of the house of Joseph and the house of Judah, which has not happened in 2,700 years. So if that doesn't quite get your attention a little bit to pay close to what's going on in this portion. I don't know what will because it's directly applicable to us uh, in our day for it. But before we go to the Haftor portion, let's examine now uh, what I consider to be one of the most interesting and compelling Bible problems in the whole Bible. And by the way, let me tell you the problem that I'm getting ready to present to you, this journey that Jacob is getting ready to make to Egypt with his family. There is a bet, a wager that has been put out, I'm not making this up, with Jews for Judaism against every Christian in the world. In fact, it's a wager in the amount of $10,000. It's a public wager that has been broadcast in this country. If the man can answer this question, this Bible question, Jews for Judaism will pay him $10,000 in a public testimony, the question that I'm going to pose before you that comes from the Bible. It's a very interesting little problem. So if you would, turn with me now to Genesis chapter 46 and let us examine one of the most intriguing places in all of the Bible, which you really have to, uh, you have to get into some serious Bible study to come to terms with the issues presented in this problem. But let me, before I get to the specifics of it, let me point out how Genesis 46 begins. So Israel set out with all that he had, and he came to Beersheba and offered sacrifices to the God of his father, Isaac. And God spoke to Israel in visions of the night and said, Jacob, Jacob. And he said, here I am. And he said, I am God the God of your father, do not be afraid to go down to Egypt, for I will make you a great nation there. I will go down with you to Egypt, and I will also surely bring you up again, and Joseph will close your eyes. Then Jacob arose from Beersheba, and the sons of Israel carried their father, Jacob, and their little ones and their wives in the wagons which Pharaoh had sent to carry him. And they took their livestock and their property, which they had acquired in the land of Canaan, and came to Egypt, Jacob, and all his descendants with him, his sons and his grandsons with him, his daughters and his granddaughters, and all his descendants he brought with him to Egypt. Now, the word descendants in verse 7 
in the Hebrew is the actual word, if we were to most literal translation, we would say all his seed. The seed of Jacob. The physical descendants of Jacob are the ones who are now going to be listed who are going to go to Egypt. And it begins in verse 8 to give you a very explicit list of the seed of Jacob. Verse 8 says, now these are the names of the sons of Israel, Jacob and his sons, who went to Egypt. Reuben, Jacob's firstborn, and the sons of Reuben, Hanok, and Palu, and Hezron, and Carmi. Now, I have put this on a series of sheets for you. And I'm going to walk you through. We're going to look at each verse, and I'm going to walk you through the names And you and I are going to count the seed of Jacob together. The verse that I just read to you is of Reuben. And I have listed off Reuben's four sons. How many went down there? Reuben and his four sons? Five of them. Now, I've also coded this on this chart for those of you that are with us tonight. I've made in the brown are the sons. The red are his grandsons. The green is the daughter's. Great, the granddaughters are in that orangey-looking color, and the great-grandsons are in blue. And so we'll see as we go through the list, exactly as the Torah presents to us, who all are of the seed of Jacob and who are going to be going down to Egypt. The next verses tell us of the sons of Simeon, Yamul and Yaman, Ohad, Jachin, and Zohar, and Shaul, the son of a Canaanite woman. So we have Simeon and these sons, a total of seven. Now, I want you to take note of, and this is, this is really going to get you. I mean, you really got to do some deep study to figure this out. Why does the Torah say, and these two particular sons, Zohar and Shaul, sons of a Canaanite woman? So what? It's a clue. Because it turns out that Simeon, and you're not going to believe this when I tell you this, but take my word for it. You do a little study. You're going to find this to be real fascinating. Married and fathered those sons with Dinah, his sister. Dinah, as you recall, was taken by the son at Shechem. And when she was taken, she became a Canaanite woman. That was the expression. And these are the sons of Simeon and Dinah, these two particular sons. They're still the seed of Jacob, but it's kind of interesting how they've intermarried in this particular case. If you recall, that custom was not that rare. Tamar, who was the daughter-in-law of Judah, who went through two of his sons, and it was Judah who ended up fathering the children of Tamar through his own daughter-in-law. Well, because Simeon was the one who came up with the idea to kill Dinah's husband, Simeon had to do the duty to render to her sons because her husband had been killed by his hand. And so Simeon fathered two sons through Dinah, the Canaanite woman. The expression, the Canaanite woman, is an expression of Torah for Dinah in this case. It gets a little more intriguing as we go into this. Next verses. And of the sons of Levi, Gershom, Kohath, and Merari. And so we have Levi and his three sons. That's four. Now we come to Judah, one of my favorites. We have Er and Onan and Shelah and Perez and Zerah, but Er and Onan died in the land of Canaan. Remember, they were the ones that were married to Tamar, and they did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they had already died. So these two grandsons, the sons of Judah, they weren't alive. They didn't make the trip down to Egypt. So they're listed as being sons of Judah, but they don't make the trip, so they're not counted. And the sons of Perez, they are counted. So we have, we have several sons, but Ur, Ur and Onan are not counted in the list. And so Judah is six. And we go to Issachar. 
his four sons, and that's five more, and Zebulun and his three sons, that's four more, and then we have Dinah, the daughter, and she's counted. So how many do we have total of all of Leah, of Leah's children, how many do we have listed here? I have five plus seven, that's 12, plus four, that's 16, plus six more is 22, plus five is 27, plus four, 31, plus Dinah, 32. 32 children of Leah. But look what it says in verse 15. Now these are the sons of Leah, whom she bore to Jacob in Padamaran with his daughter Dinah. All his sons and his daughters numbered 33. Only you just counted them, there's 32. How can there be 33? You counted 32. Let's continue. We now go further to Gad. Verse 16, and here everything seems to be just fine. The sons of Gad, Silphion and Haggai, Shuni and Esbon, Eri, Arodi, and Areli. How many is that? Eight. Okay, the sons of Asher, Imna and Ishva, Ishvi, Bariah, and their sister Sarah, and the sons of Bariah, Heber and Malkiel. How many is that? Eight. Eight and eight. That should be 16. What does verse 18 say were the daughter, the children of Zilpah? These are the sons of Zilpah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Leah, and she bore to Jacob these 16 persons. That adds up. Eight, eight, 16. There's no heir there. If we continue on, Rachel's children. It says, uh, verse 19, the sons of Jacob's wife, Rachel, Joseph, and Benjamin. Now to Joseph in the land of Egypt were born Manasseh and Ephraim, whom Asenath and the daughters of Potiphar, priest of On, bore to him, and of the sons of Benjamin. And I love this number here. Benjamin, this young man who was back at the camp, was having a good time while Joseph was off, and he had a potload of sons. In fact, he had more sons than anybody had. He had 11 of them, you know, with this youngest one. He was really having a good time back there with Jacob. Anyways, uh, three from Joseph, 11 from Benjamin, and a total of 14 that we count. And in verse 22, it says, these are the sons of Rachel who were born to Jacob, and there were 14 persons in all. That makes sense. 14. And so now we go to the sons of Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, Dan and his son, two, Naphtali and his four sons, that's five, for a total of seven. And in verse 25, it records for us, these are the sons of Bilhah, whom Laban gave to his daughter Rachel, and she bore these to Jacob, and there were seven persons in all. Everything's looking good, except for, why does the Torah say 33 persons instead of 32 as we counted? And then it gets a little more confusing, because if I take, if I take Leah's 32 that we counted, and I add them to Zilpah 16, Rachel's 14, Bilhah 7, the total is 69. Only the scripture says, and, and it's where it gets really kind of interesting. Verse 26, read with me there. All the persons belonging to Jacob who came to Egypt, his direct descendants, not including the wives of Jacob's son, were 66 persons in all. And the sons of Joseph who were born to him in Egypt were two. All the persons of the house of Jacob, Jacob. Now, that makes sense. See, I have 32, 16, 14, 7. That's 69. If I take the three sons of the three from Joseph, Joseph and his two sons, I take that three away, that's 66. That's exactly what verse 26 says. There were 66 people who went down there. That makes sense. We're, we're with it. But then it turns right around and it says, verse 27, who came to Egypt, no, we're 70. 
70, if I take 66 and 3, that doesn't equal 70. 32 didn't equal 33, and 69 doesn't equal 70. It still hasn't explained. We've got one missing. We have somebody missing in this list. The Torah has not listed all the persons. But it has concluded and said very clearly to us, there are 70 who will be included in the seed, the direct descendants of Jacob who are going to be in Egypt. Because it will be 70 who will be in Egypt. Very interesting problem. So what we have to do is we have to solve this problem. What is the difference between the 69 that we counted and the way the Torah counted the 66 plus the 3 of Joseph, which is 69? In other words, both the Torah does it and we counted it. And how did we get to 70? Because it clearly says 70 will be there. Now, the sages of Israel and Bible scholars have tried to solve this problem throughout the years. There's one argument that says, well, Jacob was included in the count. We've got a problem with that, though. How can you be the seed of Jacob and be Jacob? That doesn't make sense. Well, then some have said, and they got a little bit spiritual on us, and they said, well, it was the very presence of God. Now, there's a little more meat to this, that the very Shekinah glory of God was in the count. Only we already have a clue that tells us that this won't meet it. And that is this. When you went back to Leah, it said of Leah's count. Let me take you to the verse again. Verse 15. These are the sons of Leah whom she bore to Jacob in Padamaran with his daughter Dinah, all his sons and his daughters. Numbered 33. Daughters? There's only one. There is an extra daughter that is not listed. Because it said daughters, plural, went down there. And it will be a descendant of Levi that will be the other one. Who is it? You have to go into the next book, into the book of Exodus, to really get the answer to it. It turns out there was someone conceived in the land of Canaan who was born the day they arrived in Egypt and therefore had not come out of Canaan but was in Egypt with them and was counted when they were in Egypt but who had not left, who arrived as they arrived in Egypt and it is a lady by the name of Yoshebel. Yoshebel just happens to be the mother of Moses, a daughter of Levi. And the scripture is illustrating to us what is called one of the hidden mysteries of the Torah, a miracle that took place that shows God's promise that a daughter arrives on that day who will give birth to a son who will lead them out. As the promise has said, I will bring you back up. I will not take you down there without bringing you back up the way to do it. And it is one of the interesting little mysteries of the Torah. So it turns out that Leah did have 33. There was another daughter who will become the mother of Moses, whom will bear Moses at the age of 130 years old, many years later. Now, mind you, that's quite a miracle, because if you remember, how old was Sarah when she gave birth to Isaac? Boy, she was kind of past childbearing, but Yoshebel is way past that. And so there's a miracle, almost a miracle birth that is kind of hidden in the mystery in the scripture. So this idea about a miracle birth of a deliverer thing, it's being hinted at by not only the story of Isaac's birth, but it's being hinted in the great story of the Exodus, which, by the way, is not too far from what we've heard about the miracle birth of Yeshua, is it? The real deliverer of Israel one who will have a miracle birth of the real deliverer who will come forth. So the sages are agreed on this. 
I mean, if you go right now, I, I didn't bring the books with me, but you can go in if you study. The Jewish sages will agree. It was this lady down here. It's this lady down here. And what connects us to us, look with me to Exodus, the very next book, Exodus chapter 1, and you'll see that this story, what we're talking about, is connected to the story of the Exodus. And it begins, it's the beginning of the story of Exodus and how they're connected here. Beginning at Exodus chapter 1. Now these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. And they came each one with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher. And all the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number. But Joseph was already in Egypt and Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. And then it will go on to tell the story of a a daughter of Levi who will give birth to a man named Moses. And that's how the story of the Exodus begins. It connects back to this story of how they went down into the land. Now, I mentioned to you before that there is a wager from Jews for Judaism to the Christian world about this story. It's not about the 69 and the 70 thing. It's about this verse. Turn with me to Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7, we hear the defense of another man on trial. His name is Stephen, first martyr of the new covenant faith. And he is recounting a little bit like the way Judah appealed to Joseph. He is appealing to his Jewish brethren and recounting certain facts to try to get them to address the great issues of what has happened with the ancestors of before and what is happening with Yeshua now. And Stephen is going to recount the story that we've just addressed about Joseph going down into Egypt. And if you will, look with me now in Acts chapter 7, beginning at verse 9. And the patriarchs became jealous with Joseph. This is the defense of Stephen. And sold him into Egypt, and yet God was with him and rescued him from all of his afflictions and granted him favor and wisdom in the sight of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. And he made him governor over Egypt and all his household. Now a famine came over all of Egypt and Canaan and a great affliction with it, and our fathers could find no food. But when Jacob heard that there was grain in Egypt, he sent our fathers there the first time. And on the second visit... Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and Joseph's family was disclosed to Pharaoh. And Joseph sent word and invited Jacob, his father, and all his relatives to come to him, 75 persons in all. 75? Genesis says, Exodus says, it was 70 persons. What in the world is Stephen talking about? And in fact, Jews for Judaism says, see, this is evidence of error in what you Christians call the New Testament. You can't even recount the story correctly of what happened back in the Torah. Because it says back there, 70 persons, not 75. And so they have this wager. Now, What in the world does Stephen talk about when he says 75 persons, all total relatives are part of, because there's a slight difference in the expression, because before we were talking about the seed of Jacob, direct descendants of Jacob, and now Joseph is talking about his relatives, that his relatives were 75 persons in total. So let's go back and re-examine the numbers again. You've already seen of the direct descendants, But there's other relatives that went with Jacob down there. And here it says Jacob and, and that there were 75 total. So I get to include Jacob this time. I have the 70, and so I'm going to add Jacob, plus one. His wife, Leah, that's a relative. I'm going to add her. Now, if you recall, Rachel, the one he loved, she had already died. She wasn't there. But um, Zilpah was there, and that's another one. And Bilhah was there, the two handmaids, they were there, and that's a total of 74. So why 
did Stephen say there were 75? Because there's only 74 if we count all the relatives. And that's really the crux of the great bet of the Jews for Judaism. Because they know Rachel wasn't there, and they know that Judah's first two sons wasn't there, and they know that we're not going to count Joseph's wife. You've got to have a relative. You've got to have a seed relative of Jacob to have the 75. So where are we going to get the 75th from? And actually, Israel has already given the answer. And the answer is in the Torah. In another place that I read to you, but you weren't listening. It was the first one that was listed. The first one that was listed that didn't get counted. In fact, if you turn back with me to the Torah, back to chapter 46 and verse 4, it says, I, I the Lord, I will go down with you to Egypt. And I tell you that the seed of Jacob, the Messiah, went with them down to Egypt. How do I know that with such certainty? Well, in this particular passage, when it was translated into the Greek, they used a very interesting Greek word. This is the sages of Israel now. They used a very interesting Greek word to describe the family of Jacob that went down to Egypt. And this is the first time it's ever used. The first time in the Bible, this particular Greek word, and the Greek word that is used to describe Jacob's family that went down to Egypt is the word ekklesia. The called out assembly went down to Egypt. The word that we translate in English, the church. Ekklesia, church. And we know the church is the called out assembly which has the Spirit of God, which has the evidence of the Messiah. That's what makes the church. That's what makes the called out assembly. It's those people who have the Messiah. That's the church. That's the ecclesia. And they follow true right here. And they say that the ecclesia first showed up right here at Jacob's family. And that's where the seed of the Messiah was first in the assembly of his people. And so it's the Messiah who also went down. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is number 75. And the Torah says he went down there with them. And he was in that assembly. And the Greek language that we translate both from the Hebrew as well as to the New Testament supports. That's exactly who was down there. Because we know that the Messiah, the angel of the Lord, led the children of Israel up out of Egypt. Because at the height of the moment, which we will be studying in the next book, at the very moment they left Egypt when they crossed the Red Sea. And all the people were afraid. And they weren't sure if God was going to save them or deliver them or what. Moses stood up and said to all Israel, Stand still and see the salvation of God. In Hebrew he said, Stand still and see the Yeshua of God. The Messiah's name. He spoke the Messiah's name at the moment they came up out of Egypt. How did the Messiah get there to begin with? He went down there with Jacob to bring them up out of there. And thus it is the picture. It is the picture of what the Messiah has been doing all along with us. When we came into this meeting place this evening, what constitutes this assembly to be unique or different? What differentiates this assembly from, say, other assemblies in other places in the city? We believe the promise that for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. Now, you and I believe that the Messiah, the presence of God, the Shekinah glory of God, is present with us in this assembly. He heard us singing. He has heard our prayers this evening. And he's present at this teaching. He's with us in this place. And I tell you that he is with us every bit as much as he was with Jacob and his family 
when they went down to Egypt. And as much as he brought them up out of Egypt, he will take you and I to our future as well. We're not separate from him, and they were not separate from him then. The fact of the matter is, is that all those stories and all those things about our ancestors is supposed to be illustrating so that we'll have the confidence to believe and trust that he really is present with us. And so what we have here is the the interesting dilemma of these numbers of having them all come together, which really kind of sets the stage for us because this issue is not going to go away. This business about 69 and 70, because the Bible repeats this number 70 over and over and over again in a whole host of ways, and it's always this intriguing business. Have you ever heard of the 70 years in Babylon? Or have you ever heard of the 70 weeks prophecy of Daniel of the whole life of Israel? And do you remember the 70 weeks prophecy, how we can count the first 69 up with no problem at all, but it's that 70th one we're always having trouble with, which has to do with the Messiah and the Messiah's return. We know it's about the Messiah because we know it it traces back to the events of our ancestors. That issue hasn't gone away. That mystery is still there, still working. God's still trying to get our attention to get focused on what his real purposes are. And so I find it fitting that the Hoftor portion should be about something that's very appropriate to our day. The reunification of Joseph and Judah is key before you can have the true reunification of the Messiah with his people. We have got to get it together with ourselves, if you will, brethren, before we can all get it together with the Messiah correctly. And we have a destiny together in coming together. And that's what we should be pursuing. We should be setting aside such differences as we may have, and we should get focused on the plan that our Heavenly Father has for us. And in simple modern terms, we should get with the program. What is it our Heavenly Father is really trying to do? And let us do that. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the Torah. Thank you, Lord, for wisdom, knowledge, understanding. Thank you, Lord, for your spirit. Thank you, Lord, for little perplexing questions that sometimes the Torah presents to us about how do we count 32, but there's really 33 for the children of Leah. How is it that there's 70, but we only counted 69? And how is it that 75, all in total, relatives and all, went down there? Lord, we would ask that you would use those things that you've done in the Torah to intrigue us, woo us, and draw us to you. Because we know that in the Messiah are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And we want, Lord, in our pursuit and study of the Torah and the Scripture, to find and to see the true Messiah, the true Deliverer, true Savior, so that we might know Him and know You, that we might be a part of Him and be a part of You. So, Lord, we not only invite You, we petition You, Lord, to make us wise unto your great plan and your great salvation. Cause us to know and to understand and reveal to us, O Lord, by your Spirit, your great plan for our own lives. Lord, I do not understand your great love or your great grace that you give to us and how you've chosen us personally and individually. But we thank you, Lord, for it. And we know we can't pay for it, and we can't buy this life. We just have to accept it. So we thank you, Lord, for the great work of Messiah, like our father Joseph, and the great work that he's done to bring us back to you and be reconciled. Lord, if there be anybody here who hasn't really come to terms with being reconciled with you, we would ask, Lord that by your Holy Spirit you'd draw and woo them, encourage them, show them the great, free, and wonderful gift 
that has been given to all of us. That they might reach out and receive it. And come to know who the real Messiah is. And receive that salvation. I thank you for this congregation, Lord. I thank you for every person that's here, every family represented. And we ask, Lord, for your most wonderful blessing upon them. Encourage them, Lord. Forgive them, Lord, of their sins. Be merciful unto all of us. Cover us, Lord, with your great talit, so that all you see is the covering of your Son over us, that you do not see our sin any longer. Receive us, Lord, into your midst and make us your people. And we ask this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. For more information about Lion and Lamb Ministries, call our office at 405-447-4429. Our address is Post Office Box 720-968-Norman, Oklahoma, 73070. Our web address is www.lionlamb.net. Thank you.